0: This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Neil Ford, Director, Software Architect, and Meme Wrangler at ThoughtWorks, a global IT consultancy. We'll talk to Neil about the concept of evolutionary architecture, which is the focus of an upcoming book that he is co-writing. Also, later in this episode, we'll preview some of the topics that will be covered at O'Reilly's Fluent Conference in June. Enjoy the show. Welcome aboard. This is the first episode of O'Reilly's new programming podcast. And over the coming weeks, we'll be covering a wide variety of programming topics, software engineering, software architecture, open source, programming languages, microservices, and more. And through our conversations and interviews, you also get tips on a lot of the little things to help you get your job done better and more quickly and under budget. And we're delighted now to welcome as our first guest, Neil Ford of ThoughtWorks. Neil is also the co-chair of O'Reilly's Software Architecture Conference, which was held in early April in New York. And he's a presenter at the O'Reilly Open Source Convention, OSCON, which is coming up May 8th through 11th in Austin, Texas. To find out more about OSCON, go to O'Reilly's Safari platform, Safari Books Online, and go to the conferences section for details. And we could go on, but we'll mention just one more thing now. Neil is also the co-author of the forthcoming O'Reilly book, Building Evolutionary Architectures. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll get into a lot of discussion about evolutionary architectures in in just a bit. But first, uh, let's get everyone, myself included, all on the same page here at the outset of our conversation. What is software architecture? How How would you define that?
1: Well, that's a good question. And I would be remiss as the conference co-chair not to mention that the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is coming back to London in mid-October. So that's our second installment this year. Uh, And this is something that uh, actually, when I became sort of an advisor to O'Reilly about software architecture, uh, they really tried to hold my feet to the fire to give them a hard definition of software architecture. And I've resisted successfully so far because many, many smarter people than I have, have have waded into that swamp and never returned, Uh, because it's such a broad thing. Uh, It's so multifaceted because it covers the normal suspects of things you'd think about, like architecture patterns and things like scalability and resiliency and all the illities that belong to software architecture. But software architecture as a subject also encompasses things like Uh, soft skills like being able to document things effectively and writing skills and the ability to present and the ability to conduct a successful meeting and the ability to wrangle arguments between two developers who are working for you, who both have their vision of how you should implement something. And not only do you have to come up with the correct answer to the question, but also assuage the nerves of the other one who didn't win the contest that maybe they'll win again next time. So. It's complicated. (laughs) So the best that I've done so far for O'Reilly was to create this giant mind map uh, that touches on all the things that software architecture touches on. And we're actually using it as a kind of a content guide to think about material that we want to generate for for the software architecture portion of Safari and the O'Reilly website.
0: One of your presentations at OSCON is kind of designed to help people understand all the various aspects of software architecture. And I know that part of that is, is a hands-on exercise that you do. What kind of example or examples do you use in that exercise?
1: Well, so at OSCON, uh, I'm doing a two-day software architecture fundamentals tutorial. And we're not, I'm not pretending to get People, you know, fully blown software architecture in two days, but we do touch on a lot of the things that are required to become a software architect. So for example, one of the things that distinguishes software architecture from development is so you have requirements for a project and there's some sort of business goal or some sort of business value that those requirements represent. But as the architect, you also have a whole bunch of what are traditionally called non-functional requirements, like Mm -hmm. scalability and security and resiliency and and all the illities that go in software. Uh, And you have to to take those into account as well. And of course, you can't build an architecture that satisfies every single possible illity. And so there are trade-offs that you have to make uh, between those. And so part of our workshop, we do exercises. So part of what we do is look at a business problem. So there's this whole set of exercises that was created by a guy uh, several years ago named uh, Ted Neward, who's a pretty well-known architect uh, out in the world. And he created this exercise called Architectural Katas Katas are, this is inspired, of course, by martial arts. We have katas or koans, which are form exercises that you should practice and get better and better uh, because they represent, uh, you know, some key uh, aspect of the martial art. Well, architectural katas are little problems that are expressed in both business terms. So we have business requirements to create, for example, a new point of sale system for a hot dog stand. Uh, that particular kata is called Hot Diggity Dog. Uh, but it also has a bunch of non functional requirements, additional context, like how scalable we expect it to be. And, you know, the fact that the hot dog company had a security breach uh, six months ago, and now their board is really concerned about security. And so that's going to be a primary concern going forward. And so one of our exercises is to, given this problem, come up with. The kinds of illities that are going to be important for this problem. And then that will lead you to what sort of architectural pattern do you want to try to implement? Because different architectural patterns support different kinds of architectural characteristics. So, for example, monoliths perform really well but don't scale particularly well, whereas microservices scale to the moon but have a lot of operational complexity. And so, part of the exercise is taking those non functional requirements and using that as a decision criteria to try to pick the right kind of architectural elements that you want to implement, which is a very long answer to your question. <laughs>
0: no, that's good. <laughs> but you, well, you mentioned security. So um, can you talk a little bit more about the importance of security and software architecture diagrams? I mean, how, how does one plan for, for security?
1: Yeah, security is important. Next question. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's one of those things that a lot of companies get nabbed with because they don't pay enough attention to it until they get really zinged by it, and then that's all they pay attention to mm-hmm. for a while. And this is a really important aspect of architecture because, for obvious reasons, there are a lot of nefarious actors out in the world. Uh, One of the things that we are trying to get more instilled in people uh, is this idea that it's really more of a continual exercise versus something you do at the beginning of the project and something you do at the end. Uh, some people who are listening to this are familiar with the ThoughtWorks technology radar, which is uh, something that ThoughtWorks produces twice a year, and I, uh, I'm one of the, uh, the co-authors of that uh, document in uh, many instances. And one of the things that we put on our radar as something you should avoid is something we call the security sandwich, which is doing security at the beginning of the project and at the very end of the project, but not paying attention to it at all during development but that obviously can lead you to some bad things. And so uh, security is one of those first-class concerns that you really have to think about. And in fact, I saw a really clever thing at the Software Architecture Conference in New York. One of our keynoters was Aaron Bedra, who's really well-known in the security space, and he showed me a really, really nifty trick that I'm going to start implementing on all my projects. So we were actually talking about software diagrams, and in particular, how ineffective comprehensive software diagrams are Because they're so detailed, it's really hard to see, to get all those details together. But one of the things that he is required to do by law, because he works for a company that deals with medical records, is have comprehensive documentation, which includes things like threat monitoring and threat assessment. And one of the clever things that he did was he has a comprehensive software architecture diagram, in Omnigraffle, but every layer of the architecture is implemented as a layer in Omnigraffle. And so when you turn all the layers off, you get down to this view of boxes and lines and protocols, and that's the perfect diagram to do threat modeling against because that's the simplest kind of connectivity, and that way he can have that level of detail at the bottom of his diagram, but then turn on all those additional layers if he wants to see more uh, nuanced details.
0: Before we get into evolutionary architecture, are there any hot areas or, or pressing issues in software architecture that we haven't touched upon here yet?
1: Well, there are always interesting pressing things in software architecture. I think the most stunning thing to me about software architecture is how popular it has become over the last few years. Because I think companies like Netflix and Amazon showed that if you do software architecture really well, you actually build a competitive advantage over everybody else. So Uh, you probably saw recently Amazon release their um, sales numbers. And it turns out that Amazon makes all their money by being the operations center of the world. And they have a hobby selling books and records and groceries and stuff like that. Uh, But that really shows that but, and all that really comes from their decisions about architecture years ago about isolation and building services and the way they were going to do that. And they ended up creating a business they never expected to be in that's their most profitable business right now. And I think a lot of other companies are starting to see that when you do architecture well, it can give you an operational advantage on your competitors that you can use as a lever to, for example, get time to market significantly orders of magnitude faster or offer capabilities that your client, that your uh, competitors can't offer because you have abilities like hypothesis driven development in your art, in your architecture. So I think it's become popular over the last few years because people have started realizing that done well, it can really have a serious impact on things like bottom line.
0: Let's move uh, to discussing the, the topic of a second OSCON presentation you're giving, which is evolutionary architecture, which is also the topic of your forthcoming book. You say that predictability is impossible within today's software development ecosystem. Uh, So is it that uh, an evolutionary approach will help us better handle disruption?
1: Well, if if predictability is shot, what's your next best avenue? It's adaptability. So a great example of how predictability is shot in software development. let's say that you're a traditional enterprise architect. And one of the things that traditional enterprise architects like to do is make five-year plans. And so two years ago, you wrote a five-year plan. But two years ago, you never would have known that Docker was going to be the major architectural component in your system because it hadn't existed yet. Or if it did, it wasn't on anybody's radar yet. And if you write a five-year plan two years ago that didn't include Docker, as soon as Docker hits the ecosystem, it changes the way we think about everything. And you can take that five-year plan and throw it away. And so Trying to do predictive planning against a, an incredibly dynamic ecosystem, sometimes you'll get it right, but sometimes you'll get it really, really wrong, and, and, and in those cases, it was a complete waste of time. But why are you trying to predict the future? You're trying to predict the future because making changes is expensive and hard. What if making changes wasn't expensive or difficult, Well, then you don't have to predict the future because you can adapt to the future as it comes along. And that's the idea of an evolutionary architecture versus trying to pin down the chaotic software development world and make it predictable.
0: Yeah, you you lay out two characteristics of an evolutionary architecture that it supports a guided change and incremental change. Can you explain Mm -hmm. what you mean by both of those?
1: Absolutely. So uh, let's talk for a second about, so this touches on what we were talking about before. So when you define an architecture, you choose some particular architectural characteristics that you want to support. So let's say that for a particular system, you're designing security and performance and resiliency are the three most important things. If I want to evolve that architecture, one of the things I need to ensure is that none of those three things that I've chosen as really important things in my architecture, when I evolve my system, that they don't start degrading and I don't start harming them. So in other words, I don't want to start evolving my system and suddenly open up security holes. So that's the guided part of change in evolutionary architecture. We're, this is, we're borrowing something here from evolutionary computing and evolutionary biology, which is this idea of a fitness function. So in evolutionary computing, when you are trying to create an algorithm that will get better in successive generations, so you're building uh, some evolutionary computing and you're trying to build a better algorithm, for example, image recognition, Uh For each generation that it goes through, you want to assess, is this one closer to my target goal or not? The way that you assess that is the fitness function. So the fitness function tells you Am I closer to my target goal? So we're borrowing this concept of a fitness function in evolutionary architecture. And so for the sample architecture I was talking about, where security, uh, resiliency, and performance, I think I said were the three main things, we're going to build fitness functions around all three of those architectural characteristics. So we're going to build scalability set of tests, we're going to build performance tests, and we're going to build security tests. And we're going to wire those into a continuous deployment pipeline so that every time we make changes to our architecture, we vet that we haven't broken any of these identified important characteristics in our architecture. And that is, in fact, the incremental part of our definition. We want to rely on the engineering practices from the continuous delivery world uses things like deployment pipelines with multiple stages. It's common to have deployment pipelines who do things like unit testing and functional testing and uh, machine provisioning using tools like Docker, Puppet, or Chef. What we want to do is build stages in the deployment pipeline that also execute our fitness functions that we have define as architects. So that now every time we make a change to the architecture, we vet to make sure that we haven't broken how security works. That's the idea of a a fitness function, and that's incremental guided change in architecture. So that's the way you can build an architecture that can adapt to change, because as you make changes, you vet to make sure you haven't broken any of the important reasons that you chose this architecture to begin with.
0: Now, as opposed to building new projects. How can evolutionary architecture work on an existing system? Can can it prevent existing architectures from degrading?
1: Absolutely, because the real question becomes, how easy is it to build some sort of fitness function around that characteristic that you want to protect moving forward? And so that's the real complication here, because some fitness functions are quite complex. So for scalability, for example, is, is a difficult thing to automate. It's possible, but it takes some effort and work. And if you have a really terrible monolithic application where you have a layered architecture, but you've allowed people to cheat across the layers, it's going to be really hard to wire up a fitness function around some of those characteristics just because they are not well defined within the architecture or they have degraded to the point where it's hard to identify them anymore. But if you do have an architecture that has good, clean characteristics, you can absolutely put fitness functions in place now to keep them from degrading or degrading further at some point in the future. So there's nothing magical about this. You can apply this to any existing system and, in fact, can start applying it uh, right away for parts of the system that you want to really fundamentally protect, like security and uh, resiliency or some of those kind of core architectural important things.
0: Neil, did you struggle at all with naming this? How'd you arrive at the term evolutionary architecture?
1: Uh, that actually comes from one of my co-authors. We've actually been talking, and, and uh, so the three of us are working on this. Myself, Rebecca Parsons, who's the ThoughtWorks CTO, and uh, Pat Qua, who is a tech lead in uh, London. Rebecca has actually done a lot of thinking around architecture in this and fitness function terms, and so she's the one that brought the idea of uh, fitness functions to the table. Um, But we've all been talking about different aspects of this for a while. Uh, And so it is, in fact, evolutionary. In fact, we make a distinction in our book between uh, evolutionary versus adaptable systems. Because when you think about adapting a system to incorporate change versus evolving it, The real difference between those two, and it's beyond just semantics, the real difference is adapting a system means making it accommodate some new behavior alongside the existing behavior, whereas evolving it means fundamentally changing its behavior. And the side effect of that is when you use adaptability, you actually increase technical debt because now you're supporting more than one thing, and that means you've got to maintain more than one thing, whereas if you evolve your architecture you are fundamentally changing and not trying to support a lot of, uh, of uh, legacy stuff from the past or different versions of things. We're just moving purely forward. Okay, how, how about the downside or, or what might some of the pitfalls uh, be
0: of evolutionary architecture?
1: Well, certainly uh, there's some complexity around this. Some of the fitness functions are going to be very difficult to define. Uh, For example, you know, if you have a terrible big ball of mud architecture and you really want to protect its performance, but there's no good way to test performance, then it's really going to be hard to put any kind of uh, fitness function uh, around it. But this is, I think, one of those problems that, you know, 10 years ago, nobody tried to automatically provision machines because everybody said, ah, that's just too hard. Nobody will ever figure out how to automate that. But then they did with Puppet and Chef and Docker and you've seen what an explosion of productivity that has uh, what a boon that has been. I think we're going to see the same thing. We're in the very early days of some of these varieties of fitness functions, but I think it's useful to create the nomenclature around this because one of the problems you have in large companies is that you have I saw one of these just the other day at one of our clients, the spreadsheet that has all of these architectural characteristics in it. So they want five nines of availability, and they want this, and they want that, and it's in a spreadsheet. And I asked him, I said, hey, it's awesome that you created the spreadsheet. Who checks the spreadsheet when you make changes to the architecture? And they kind of looked around at each other and said, well, you know, we, every once in a while, we check these things. And I said, what if you cast every single one of those things as a test that gets run every single time you make a change to your architecture? Now you don't have to have someone going and checking it in an ad hoc way. You're applying it automatically. And so by treating all these things as equal, anything that verifies the veracity of our architecture is a fitness function, whether it's metrics or uh, tests. And this encourages people like enterprise architects to start thinking in terms of testable objective results things. Uh, Which I think is a good mindset to have because now it's much harder to skip important things because you're treating them as uh, fitness functions, which are things that need to be run on a regular basis.
0: So, Neil, how, how do you go about achieving coupling between components and services?
1: Well, that's a big uh, question that always comes up in uh, modern architectures because it turns out that how things are coupled to one another has a big impact on how evolutionary it is and how easy it is to, for example, migrate from one architectural style to another. And so we spend a fair amount of time in the book, and I spend a, a bit of time in the presentation at OSCON talking about how coupled different kinds of architectures were are uh, and how that impacts the ability to, for example, uh, migrate them from one architectural style to another one. But uh, one of the things that, uh, so one of the really common things that I see professionally right now, a lot of companies are taking uh, monolithic architectures that they built, they've been building on for a while, but have hit a wall in terms of performance or scalability or some other characteristic. And now they are migrating those architectures to more of a microservice or service based architecture. And the, question keeps coming up for us is, is it worth doing this or not, or should we just start it over? And part of the way that we achieve the answer, come up with the answer for that, is first by trying to improve the modularity of the existing architecture they have. So that's the component modularity. So try to get all the components kind of grouped together that have like functionality. And if you're successful getting those together in a relatively clean way, then that becomes the boundaries. You can slice those things apart and turn those things into services. And so really the the determination phase of this is the first step in the actual migration, uh, but going through that helps you determine if, is this coupled in such a way that it's going to make sense to try to pull it apart, or is it so degeneratively coupled that would be better off just starting from scratch?
0: Neil, this has been great. If listeners want to find out more about you and what you're doing, uh, where can they go online?
1: They can certainly go to my website, which is Neilford.com, N-E-A-L, Ford, like the car, dot com. If you're interested in the Evolutionary Architecture book, we have the website, evolutionaryarchitecture.com, uh, and you can go to that website to uh, find out more details about it. Great. Neil Ford, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: We're joined now by Allie McDonald, O'Reilly editor and a program chair at O'Reilly's Fluent Conference, which will be held June 19th through 22nd in San Jose, California. Fluent focuses on all areas of the web and a real dynamic group of speakers and topics are lined up for this year's event. And Allie is the perfect person to give us a preview of what will be going on. Hi, Allie.
2: Hi, Jeff. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Sure. So, what are the new or kind of hot things that are part of the Fluent program this year?
2: So, we're really excited um, for Fluent this year. So, it's our fifth year at Fluent, and um, we've been adding to the program the last couple years, uh, you know, kind of stretching beyond the front end and more than just JavaScript. Um, but, you know, those core technologies are still a huge part of the Fluent programming, but we're really happy to have even more... Um, server-side and security-focused content this year. Um, So really kind of all areas of the web, front-end, back-end. And also a major part of Fluent this year is having our performance track and kind of taking web performance on um, as a core part of Fluent going forward, which we had previously had at our Velocity conference. Um, So this is really great because I think it is... A natural fit, people working on the web, you know, performance, accessibility, security. Those are kind of cornerstones of the modern web, and something that developers, front end, full stack, back end, um, you know, need to think about and need to kind of have uh, hands on learning, um, you know, to do their jobs. And you know, at Fluent, it's a place where you can kind of get into all of these topics, learn where you might want to specialize. Maybe one day you do want to become more of a performance engineer, or you want to get more into security. Um, And, you know, Fluent because it has such a wide scope, what's good is that you can kind of dip in and see different types of topics and then, you know, dive deeper into the ones that you really want to invest in. So we're really happy to have all these, you know, all these things covered at Fluent this year.
0: And there's a lot of hands-on training and learning that's really an integral part of this event, right?
2: Exactly, yeah. So we do have um, the first two days of the event, we have full-day, two-day trainings, um, you know, from experts and trainers and speakers that we've worked with at several past events. And, you know, those include uh, trainings on things like progressive web apps, which is, a you know, new major thing in web development, you know, React.js, which is another major framework on the front end, Um, moving to microservices, you know, practical hands-on approaches for teams that are trying to adopt microservices, um, you know, in their web project. So we have a lot of opportunities for people who kind of want to do that deep dive into an area. Um, They can with those trainings and also with the tutorials we have on Tuesday. And then, you know, at the, the end of the conference, two days of sessions, you know, 40 minute sessions allows you to, like I said, kind of pick and choose your pathway. We have a lot of different like learning paths and ways in which people can kind of carve up their schedule to fit what they want to explore most. But um, you know, the mix of training and shorter sessions, I think allows people to kind of get really focused and also to explore.
0: So if our listeners want to find out more, where where should they go?
2: They can go to the Fluent website at fluentconf, so that's fluentconf.com and we're also fluentcom on Twitter.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Allie.
2: Thank you, Jeff.
0: Thank you for listening. And once again, the forthcoming book that Neil Ford is co-authoring is Building Evolutionary Architectures. And we'll have a link to information about that in the show notes that accompany this episode. And likewise, we'll also have links where you can get more information about the O'Reilly events, OzCon and Fluent. If you like the podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you'll never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Lyle.